Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. Stan Friedman is back with a brand new book called Flying Saucers and Science, subtitled A Scientist Investigates the Mysteries of UFOs. Now, in the book, you go into a lot of your own history as a nuclear physicist and the fact that you seem to get stuck on projects that were always canceled. Now, yeah. <laughs> yeah, now, now, before we go on, did any of these projects actually go to fruition, or did they just say, well, that's it, Stan, you got to look for a new job? Well, in a sense, they did go to Some of them did anyway. I mean, we did operate jet engines on nuclear power at the Aircraft Nuclear Propulsion Department of General Electric. We did operate nuclear rocket engines when I worked for Westinghouse Astronuclear Lab. That was very exciting. Well, it lasted. When I worked, one of my shortest jobs was, at PRW Systems in California working on uh, the radiation levels from the power supply for the Pioneer spacecraft and that left the Earth and has left the solar system and it worked. So. Yeah, <laughs> but, but you know, why are we still using chemical rockets to get people into space? Well, wait, uh, that, um, on the uh, Pioneer, that wasn't a propulsion system. That was a power supply, electric right. power, because yeah. the sun intensity decreases as the square of the distance. So, uh, uh-huh. you know, yeah. you get out pretty far and there ain't much sunlight there. So you better use something that lasts almost forever, and plutonium-238 is a good example of that. Now, why we use solar power in some of the deep space missions, that I don't know. But, uh, no, I, I worked on a lot of projects. Uh, there was excitement because we're on the leading edge of technology. And, you know, there's some people who think that, you know, a big project is uh, four professors and 12 grad students. Well, that may be so in the university level, but in industry, that's a teeny tiny project. The AMP project was $100 million a year, 3,500 people full-time back in 1958. That's $1958, so when we compare that, it would be 10 times as much. It would be a billion-dollar project. Now, the reason I ask about that is there are still people who run around talking about so-called free energy, zero-point energy, and all this stuff. Now, as someone who has looked at energy resources and capabilities and has worked in that business. What do you think of all this stuff? Well, I think it's a, a big to-do with nothing behind it. In other words, you see it with uh, Steve Greer and the Disclosure Project and stuff, and for reasons unknown, he mixes, hey, we recovered a saucer at Roswell, and therefore we now have free energy which is being withheld and it can solve all the world's problems and uh, by the way you can buy some stock in a company that's uh, going to make these free energy devices and sorry but I certainly am convinced that we did recover an alien spacecraft near Roswell and I certainly convinced that we probably learned a few things from it but that doesn't mean that any of those things were free energy in the sense in which Steve talks about it. Like you set up a, either each house has its own free energy uh, power supply or we have a central station free energy thing. I mean, it, it's pretty silly when you think about it. The sun is free, the wind is free, but the converters cost something. Actually, they cost quite a bit. And so, and also you have a little problem that the sun doesn't shine all the time uh, and the wind doesn't blow all the time. Free but, and there are several buts there. So I have seen no evidence that we have figured out free energy. And oh, I know, people have, uh, they've sent me sketches and patents. <laughs> and, you know, this is going to do it all. And 
the fact they've got a patent doesn't prove the thing's going to work and doesn't prove that it's going to be economically meaningful. I mean, I'm not saying there isn't energy to be obtained from zero-point energy. I suspect that sometime we'll figure that out. But I don't know how to do that now. And it would not be surprising if we were not able to duplicate the capability of somebody who might be a thousand or a million or a billion years ahead of us, would it? I mean, look back a hundred years. Look at all the things we have today that they couldn't have built if you'd handed one to the smartest people in the world a uh, hundred years ago. Say a laser, you know, or the computer that's sitting on my desk that everybody has one of, or a whole bunch of other things, the microwave upstairs. The fact that you had one, first of all, wouldn't tell you how it works. Second, if you figure out how it works, that doesn't tell you how to duplicate it. I mean, if I handed you a chip or a device with a couple of chips in it, microchips, you're going to spend the billion dollars to build the microchip factory? That's what it costs Intel for a big one. There's no tooling up. I mean, and at that point, you take go, go 125, 130 years back with a chip, and uh, where's the electricity? Uh, well, that's right. That's right. You know. So what, what I'm saying is that the notion that because you've got something that's very advanced means you can duplicate it and cheaply, mind you, is yeah. nonsense. It just doesn't, doesn't work that way. And, you know, we weren't profligate with the government money we were spending on all those programs. It takes a lot of effort by a lot of people and you know, I get a kick out of something I just read in the book. One of the reasons of many that I give for aliens possibly wanting to visit Earth is that we're the densest planet in the solar system. That means more pounds per cubic foot than any other planet in the solar system. And what that means is more heavy metals here than any place else in the solar system. And one of the ones that I mentioned, I even have a little table with the specific gravity, the density of various heavy metals, most of which most people have never heard of. And one of the ones I mentioned was rhenium, which is roughly twice as dense as lead. But it has very good high temperature properties, unlike lead. Well, I noticed a little blurb that says that because we want higher efficiency in jet engines, we want them to operate at higher temperatures. And one way to strengthen the steels and other materials, the alloys out of which you build the fan blades and the rest of that, is to add little bits of special things, one of them being rhenium. And the price of rhenium in less than two years has gone from $1,000 a kilogram, which isn't exactly cheap to begin with, to $11,000 a kilogram. Jeez. Now, think about that. This is twice as dense as lead, so a kilogram doesn't take up much space, I'll tell you that. Seven grand, uh, wow. Yeah, you know, so what I'm saying is that, yeah, you say, well, all you got to do is add a little rhenium to the alloy. Well, how do you do that? You know, what's the best way to do that? And where do you get the rhenium, and how much does it cost? And you see my point, that these things don't come cheap. It takes a lot of guys working in a lot of places trying to figure out better ways of doing things. And that's the advantage of having been out in industry as opposed to the universities. When I was being interviewed for that Peter Jennings mockumentary a couple of years back, <laughs> I was asked after the formal interview was done, the guy who had asked sensible questions, it was a reasonable interview over an hour, and they used only 20 seconds, but that's beside the <laughs> He said, now Stan, don't you think if these things were real that half the scientists and universities would be working on research on them? And my answer was a very loud, no, those who can do, those who can't teach, 
you want advanced technology, you go to industry. You want a stealth aircraft, you know, that sort of thing. You go to industry. You want a U-2, you don't go to your nearest university and give me some grad students to help me with this. It takes a lot of effort on the part of a lot of very competent people to do advanced technology. And, you know, I'm not defending the amounts of money that have been spent, but uh, let's be realistic. The, the nuclear weapons labs, each of them has an annual budget over a billion dollars. You know, it, it takes people and effort and technology and capability. And that gets left out of many of the discussions. And I have found that the average professor knows nothing at all about those projects that I worked on. There was for a while a really rotten Wikipedia article on on me saying that, oh, he worked on a number of paper studies. Well, boy, I'll tell you, when I was listening to the NRX A6 nuclear rocket reactor operating out at uh, the nuclear test site, not far from Area 51, of course, it was great joy, and it wasn't a paper study. I had equipment and measuring devices on that. I was very pleased about that. So there's a real world, and then there's the imaginary one of the nasty, noisy negativists. And you notice I get into that a little bit with the SETI cultists. Oh, yeah. Uh, I know some people will be offended by that term, but I think you have to call a spade a spade. You know, if people are saying dumb things based on stupid assumptions, somebody's got to stand up and say the emperor has no clothes. Well, well Stan, i, I got to just throw this at you then because that's a very relevant statement. But don't you think that statement can easily be, be turned around on the mainstream UFO field, what you just said? What do you mean? I mean, is there not a cult of UFOs at this point? Aren't well, there yeah, cults? but I'm not part of it. Of course there are all kinds of weird people out there saying all kinds of stupid things. That's not my fault. I can't stop them. No, no, no understood. But inside of the UFO field, there are people who grab a hold of one specific idea and defend it to the death. And it seems to me that that potentially could be defined as a cult. And the reason I say that is after having absorbed so much of uh, Jacques Vallée's works, it seems to me like that was a man with a, a very open mind saying, you know, I can't draw a definitive conclusion, so I must remain open to many different possibilities. It just seems like in the UFO field, there are people who uh, will, will fight to defend something. And, and it's funny you brought up Greer. You, you talk about Greer in your book with regards to the Disclosure Project and the many problems that swirl around Greer, many of which we uncovered in our interview with him. It's not that it, that's a hard that's not a hard thing to do. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, he was spouting off about Tesla and Stubblefield, and when I confronted him with specific questions about Tesla's works, because he talks about you know Tesla's work in the zero point field, and I said, you know, I've read a bunch. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Greer said this. <laughs> And I said to him, you know, as someone who's a student of Tesla, I've read uh, so many things about him and by him, and I've never seen a reference to zero-point field research. He did a bunch of work with in terms of electromagnetic resonance, yep. Yep. and uh, he had, had, later in his life had done work about the geothermal uh, potential of the ocean. And I said, but, you know, and the wireless transmission of energy. I said, but I don't see anything in here about the zero-point field. And he said, well, you're just going by the media distortions around Tesla. And I said, I'm, I'm talking about Tesla's personal notes and autobiography. There's no media misinterpretation. I'm going by the man's own words. Well, that's a, that's an, a very esoteric discussion. It's like, I said, yeah, it's like, you brought it up. 
What do you mean? It's esoteric. At Stubblefield, Stubblefield was dealing with something that had nothing to do with the zero-point energy issue. But the thing is, like so many things, people will grab on to when Tesla said, I believe I'm getting, I'm receiving things from, from outside of yep. this planet. This is when he was already into his mental decay later in his age. People have run with that, and they've formed entire cults of thought around it. So, I mean... I don't it, deny that. Okay. Yeah, because it's just... I don't deny that. But they don't get the kind of treatment that the SETI people do as if they were doing science to the nth degree. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on hand, and he has a special offer for listeners of the Paracast. We are offering six issues for the price of five. Normally, when you send me a subscription for $19.95, a new subscription, you get five issues. It's our introductory offer. But just for our friends on the Paracast and friends of Gene and Dave, we're going to throw in an extra issue and give you six issues for the price of five. That's six issues for $19.99 just for you. How do we take advantage of this offer? There are three ways to take advantage of it. One is, if you're online, go to www.ufomag.com. Hit subscribe when you come to the PayPal page. Just put in under item, Paracast Offer, 1995, and I will know that you get six issues for the price of five. Or you could send your check or money order to UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California. That's Ray spelled R-E-Y. California 90295. Put down your name and your address, and on your name and address label, put down Paracast offer. You can also put it on your check for 1995 in your money order. I will know exactly what it means because I'm psychic, and I will credit you with six issues instead of five for that 1995. Or you can call me at 1 888 UFO. 6242, and I will take your name and address and your credit card and send you six issues for the price of five, and that's how you do it. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. On the Paracast, Stanton Friedman, and the middle name T, by the way, stands for Terry, right? Right on. That was the important question for two different English interviewers back <laughs> in the late 80s when I did a tour over there. Oh, my God. Okay. I, so, I mean, it was, it was quite remarkable, but I, I will say this. 
they had that wonderful BBC voice, you know. So they can say any idiotic thing, and they have the voice to match it up. Of course, I could say idiotic things, and that just sound idiotic. But I would want to mention you also have a new book out called Flying Saucers and Science. And Flying Saucers and Science, subtitled A Scientist Investigates the Mysteries of UFOs, is not a compendium of sightings so much as an entire, (laughs) because we've had a lot of those, but a story about his investigation, his scientific experience, and a lot of things that he's learned over the years, which is why we're talking about energy sources now, because it relates to our previous week's show, where we actually talked to Dr. Greer, and, you know, I guess he seemed to be most interested in whether he could raise $3 million for his little venture. Well, you know, that $3 million is is an interesting number. Uh uh I mentioned we were spending $100 million at GE in 1958 on trying to develop a nuclear airplane. $100 million. How far is $3 million going to get you in any advanced technology development Absolutely. program? Absolutely. $3 million is not going to get you butkus. That's right. I, I mean, I hate to say it, and I'm not a spendthrift. I was careful when I spent the government's money, the public's money. Uh, I did work with exotic materials that were quite expensive. But what I'm saying is, Anybody who thinks that more than that hasn't already been spent on trying to get free energy, if you will, is... Well, you know, in the government, for $3 million, we can get a half dozen toilet bowls. Well, yeah, I mean, those are covered for something a little more exotic, of course, you know that. Right, Right. of course. Now, uh, to change our situation, and and you notice that I also talked about fusion. uh, Yes. Your fusion. And I actually brought that up with her on the show, yeah, and he just immediately poo-pooed it. (laughs) Why? Oh, he said, oh, that's so old. That's old-fashioned. That's just old-fashioned. Old-fashioned, you know? but yeah. we haven't succeeded in taming S- nuclear fusion. Exactly. We've used it. In other words, I, I love the, the interesting juxtaposition of the fact that in 1938, we finally figured out how the sun produces its energy. To anybody listening, it is not a mass of burning gas. There's no Arabs up there. It's a fusion factory. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, sure. And now, the crazy thing is, we figured that out in 38. Less about 14 years later, we put it to use. We exploded the world's first H-bomb, which is a fusion device. That was in 1952, October 31st, I guess. Halloween? No, <laughs> I think so. Anyway, uh, it was a 10-megaton nuclear weapon, 10 million tons of TNT, TNT equivalent. And the fireball was only three miles wide. Now, what do you suppose the aliens thought about that? Holy cow, the idiots have figured out the, one of the mysteries of the universe. And, and I stress it in the book simply because, A, I worked on nuclear fusion propulsion systems, which have some very attractive features. And, B, every advanced civilization in the neighborhood is going to figure out, is going to learn about fusion because that's what makes their star work. That's the fission right. is a little different, you see, because for that you need uranium. Again, we're the densest planet, uranium is very dense, but older planets will have less uranium, much older star systems, in other words. But fusion is everywhere. If you use the right stuff in the right ways, and I'm talking about propulsion now, you can kick particles out the back end that have 10 million times as much energy per particle as they can get in a dumb old chemical rocket. Now, that's real progress. Now, we have for uh, roughly 50 years, almost 50 years, been trying to make fusion work as a power source down here. 
that's an entirely different problem from the propulsion problem. In the first place, you've got competition. We already know how to make big power plants that burn oil or coal or fission power plants. We know that we can build them and they'll last for a long time and they work. It has been proposed that the first nuclear fusion power plant down here, a sample system, if you will, demonstration plant, uh, would only cost three or four billion dollars. We're nobody's going to spend that on a plant that might last a month. You build a power plant, you want it to last 20, 30, 40 years. So we haven't been very successful, partly because there are too darn many of us physicists and not enough engineers. Mm. Making systems work is something that engineers do. You know, you, you listen to the astronomers and they'll tell you how not to go to the moon. <laughs> and they've made so many calculations that turn out to be baloney because they don't know anything about technology. You know, the simple-minded one, uh, I like the expression of using uh, free energy, Mother Nature's uh, energy, cosmic freeloading, I like. It makes one heck of a lot of difference if you let Mother Nature do part of the job instead of having to provide the energy yourself. We don't find the astronomers, the theoretical physicists, talking about that at all. They think they can start with basic physics and figure out, oh, you'd never be able to get a man to the moon. Okay, they're basically looking for theories, and they don't think about how things work in the practical and in the real world. But I wanted to ask you one question based on what you said earlier, that we're looking at the alien beings watching us developing nuclear energy. Now, do you subscribe to the possibility that these beings, whoever and whatever they are, have been here for thousands of years visiting us? Well, maybe they're ancestors. I don't think well, I'm not thinking guys. it's the same guys, you know, the same guys and gals or whatever they are. Well, I'm yeah, thinking I, of the I race. Yeah. I make several assumptions about what's going on. I think that there are loads of civilizations in our neighborhood, lots of planets on which there are civilizations, uh, you know, however you define that, and that they've been out there for ages. And I furthermore make one other assumption that they're concerned about their own survival and security. That forces them to check out all the guys in the neighborhood. You don't want somebody to sneak up on you and clobber you. I expect that the libraries contain loads of trip reports, checked out Earth, there's still a bunch of idiots over there, nothing to worry about, they show no signs of being able to leave their solar system. Uh, for a long time it was they can't even leave their planet. And so, I think rather than having, you know, three civilizations per 10,000 light years kind of thing, which is the way the SETI people are moving, and because they're not getting signals, you know, so there can't be anybody out there very close, which is pretty darn silly. I think that there are loads of civilizations that they have been checking us out for ages. We may be somebody's long, I won't say lost, but colony. You know, I like the notion of a penal colony. Uh, you dump all the bad boys and girls here, and maybe that's why we're so nasty to each other. But what I'm saying is, I, I don't think this is a, a one-off event. Oh, for the first time ever in the history of planet Earth, aliens have stopped by. I don't think so at all. All ancient civilizations have stories about beings coming down from the sky in craft. I'm not talking about gods. I'm talking about beings. And so that fascinates me, and it leads me to the notion, since we have moved so rapidly technologically in, say, the last 150 years, that others, other places have done the same thing. Sure. Now, it may have happened here 
27 times in the last billion years. I don't know. We don't know. We have very little history of our planet, really. And this crazy notion that absence of evidence is evidence for absence. You know, I can't bring an alien body up before Congress and say, see, that doesn't mean they haven't been here. So this is a very different picture than you'll get from the city guys, because they don't want to admit that there's no science behind city. I mean, the notion that we can figure out what an alien civilization is going to use to communicate with in the first place, and we can justify somehow that they're going to send messages to people they don't know and, according to the SETI people, they can't reach. It's pretty silly, don't you think? I mean, think well, about it. To assume that there is any understanding of what would be a non-human motivation uh, is sort of patently ridiculous from a logical point of view. Except uh, that, for the notion of self-protection and security. Self-preservation. Well, self-preservation, self-preservation. Yeah. would be, uh, I think you probably could make the, the argument that that would be a universal motivator in any sentient life. Yeah. So, right? I mean, that, that's pretty obvious. Yeah. But the other side of that, Stan, is that really, when it comes to understanding even the history of our own planet, I think it's probably fair to say that people maybe put too much faith in our current scientific understanding of the history of the planet, in that even in talking about things like the fossil record, um, I think it's really critical that people understand that the vast majority of life that's lived on this planet has not left any fossil evidence. The vast majority. You know, the, the fossils that we find are, are in very specific circumstances where a, a specific, you know, c- configuration of things happen to preserve bones inside yeah. of some medium. But for like the most part, carpet. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But when you're talking about, you know, th- soft membrane life, for example, there's almost no fossil evidence at all. So we right. really don't understand what's happened on this planet. And so to, to assume that at that point we can understand the motivations of something that doesn't come from this planet, it's kind of like the idea of, okay, we're going to understand the universe, but yet we still don't know what lies five miles below the surface of our planet. You know, we're, yeah. we're, it, it, it's kind of sad to look at the vanity of human beings and their self-delusion. I mean, it's, it's, this is where you start to say, oh, you know, if there is intelligent life out there, why would they try to communicate with us as a peer? It doesn't make sense. And actually, this was yet another thing we got into with Greer, where he was talking about, oh, they want, they want to communicate with us because we're ready for the next step into evolution. And I said what? to him, we're a planet. Yeah, I said to him, we're a planet of violent monkeys. What are you talking about? If there's a sentient civilization of sentient beings, very likely, if they're coming from older stars, if they're coming from a place where there are thousands, if not ten thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years ahead of us, how could they ever deal with us as as peers? It's like us going back to the you know proto humans or you know little monkeys and saying, okay, let's sit down and have tea. It's sort of ridiculous, and I think that yeah. what you're talking about with the SETI project, the idea that okay, there are beings that are actively trying to communicate with us. Hey, we're here. It's like, well, maybe they're not as exhibitionistic as we are. <laughs> it's silly stuff like the that. The library already lists all the advanced, all the radio stations in the neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it reminds me that for some while, and for some people even today, they still accept Bishop Usher's notions. He was back in, what, the 17th century, I guess. And he figured out, using the Bible, all the begats and stuff, 
and the world was created, uh, you know, 4004 B.C. We laugh at that a little bit, although there are still some people who take him seriously, but we don't know much more than that about what happened in the past. Oh, yeah. In other words, exactly. we, we don't know what happened a million years ago. We don't know about any civilizations that might have been here and gone. Exactly right. We now exactly. know that catastrophes can happen. What if a uh, an asteroid hit? Well, would you know if you stopped by, you know, a million years later? Nothing. Yeah, we need a better understanding of the limits of our knowledge of our own past and certainly the limits of our knowledge of somebody else's future, if you will, somebody who got started right. before we did. And, Absolutely. you know, it's nice to think that we're at the top head of the class, but when I point out to people, there you got Zeta-1 and Zeta-2 reticuli just... 39 light years away. You've mentioned this before, that the fact that you feel that these UFOs are coming from our galactic neighborhood, being nearby star systems and the scheme of things. But assuming that spacefaring races have been around for thousands or millions of years and that they get here not necessarily by the way we would get here, maybe they go through warp drive yeah, or whatever, would there be any limitation at all as to distance? Why should it matter? It should matter because of how many civilizations you have to go by on the way to someplace else. I'm not saying they can't come from other galaxies, but when you stop to think that there's oh, roughly 200 billion stars in our neighbor in the galaxy, and you want to go someplace for dinner, why would you talk about another galaxy? Yeah, you see what I'm getting at. There's room enough here. In there's our enough galaxy. stuff going on. Absolutely, I'm with you, uh, Stan. When I read that in your book, I thought this is just like so obvious. The crazies in the field talk about oh, they're coming here from Andromeda. You know what? Why Why would anybody do that? This is like you've got, uh, you know, two million light years between us and Andromeda. There's so much stuff going on in our galaxy, including some very old stars, stars much older than ours, in much denser areas. In fact, if one assumes that in older stars we have the potential of older civilizations and that in a lot of the areas where there are older stars in our galaxies, you have much higher concentrations of stars in those areas. Well, yeah. At that point, it's even easier to go interstellar distances. I mean, at that point, why even come out here? You know, we're, we're sort of in the boonies where we are. You go center to the closer to the center of the galaxy. There's more stuff going on, including this really interesting black hole sitting in the middle of the galaxy. So why would you, don't you go get the other too point? close to that? Well, maybe there's benefit in getting too close to that that we don't well, know about. Sure, there is. Yeah. Cosmic freeloading. Exactly. Just keep the right distance. I mean, you want a good gravitational field. Uh, there's a great one. Yeah. I pointed that out to people. You could use uh, find a local black hole and uh, use it to uh, just like we use the planets to get to the next planet. You know, freeloading, right. uh, and that's what it is. It's freeloading. The gravitational fields there. Might as well use it. Use it as a slingshot. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, but again, getting back uh, to me, the prime directive is make sure you don't let any idiots get out here. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and we've got our share. Uh, in other words, I think with billions, or a couple hundred billion anyway, nobody's counted all the stars in case anybody's wondering. We don't know how many there are. And you look at different astronomy texts, oh, 100 billion or 200 billion, 300 billion. Yeah, it's you know, between it's 200 a, and 400 billion. It, it, it's a pretty wide number, yeah, wide yeah, range. Yeah, but it's a huge number. That's the point, and that, mm -hmm. that's why I say... Uh, you know, if you're trying to choose a place to go to dinner, you don't go when you live in Fredericton. 
You don't say, where's a good restaurant in, uh, oh, Outer Mongolia? You know, because who's got time to go to dinner there, you know? Well, well, unless you're Elvis Presley and you want those uh, peanut butter, bacon, and banana sandwiches, then you load your friends onto the jet and fly a thousand miles to buy them. But that means, that's a, you know, if you're Elvis, that's a good gag. Stan, I want to ask you about something a little off topic because you brought up um, the reality of the thing called the black hole. I assume you've been hearing all about the uh, the people now freaking out over the Large Hadron Collider over at CERN. What do you think about that? What do you think about the idea that they might be able to create a miniature black hole on the planet? And do you think there's any danger to that? Well, you know, before they set off the first A-bomb, there was concern about, gee, maybe we'd light up the atmosphere and there won't be any more us. A lot of calculations were done, and it turned out that messy as A-bombs and H-bombs might be, that they don't light up the atmosphere, even though, right. you know, I mentioned the first one was 10 megatons, the Russians set off one 50 megatons. That's impressive to me. I mean, that's a lot of love. I grew up in New Jersey. If you set off one of those in the middle of New, over the middle of New Jersey, you'd start fires all the way from Philadelphia to New York. Well, you know, some yeah. people, when you drive on the New Jersey Turnpike, you think they've already done it. You know, there used to be only two ways, neighbors, to meet for business, over the phone or in person. Well, now there's a better way. Use GoToMeeting to meet online. With GoToMeeting, everyone sees your computer desktop on their computer screen. So you get the best of both worlds. It's like meeting in person, but without wasting time and money traveling. And you know what the airlines are doing these days. It's a complete mess. And remember this, your conference calls will be more effective. The best part is that you can try GoToMeeting free right now for 30 days. For this special offer, you must visit www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts. That's gotomeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Hey, on the PowerCast, we have Stanton Friedman, author of a new book, Flying Saucers and Science. A scientist investigates the mysteries of UFOs, and we have been focusing it from the standpoint of propulsion systems, what alien beings might have to do to get here from there. David? Well, this brings up an interesting point, Stan, and, and you know, we... We love having you on the show. It's always useful to uh, to talk with you because of your experience in this field. We're also known as being uh, troublemakers. And, uh, in fact, I've had some long talks with your uh, nephew about that because he's another <laughs> guy. Who's, uh, he's, he likes to be a troublemaker, too, and in that we really get along. Yeah. All right. So we've got creatures potentially coming from faraway star systems inside of our galaxy. The speed of light is perhaps not going to cut it. Um, because even if you're talking about the speed of light, from one edge of the galaxy to the other, there's 100,000 light years. So to get from one edge of the galaxy to the other, take you 100,000 years at the speed of light. No, so, uh, no, wait a minute. No, no, yeah. let, let, let's get it straight. You can't okay. have half an Einstein. 
you know, you can have half a hamburger maybe, but not half an okay. Einstein. All right. If you're going to say what Einstein said holds, that is, that as you get close to the speed of light, uh, time slows down. Right. Then you have to take that into account too. You can't say, well, it limits the speed of light. And let's see, I want to go uh, 20 light years as fast as I can get there is 20 years. Hey, I'm the pilot. I want to do it if I do it at 99.99% of the speed of light. It's only going to take uh, less than two years my time. And it's my time that matters. So, and incidentally, for people who think, oh, that's baloney, that's never been demonstrated. Well, it has been. No, it has been demonstrated. I'd I'd love the experiment where two guys carried two atomic clocks right. uh, in airplanes, commercial planes. They went around in one direction, and they went around the planet in the other direction. And there's a slight difference, and they calculated right. using relativity. And son of a gun, Mr. and Mrs. Atomic Clock, and that's what they were listed on the passenger <laughs> manifest, demonstrated that Einstein was right. There is a difference in which way you're going, you know, time slowing down. Right. The guys building the accelerator you were talking about certainly had to take that into account. Sure. People forget we physicists make particles that go 99.999, et cetera, percent of the speed of light. So, you know, it's nice to talk about that as if you could get by with half an Einstein, but I think you got to take the whole Einstein into but, account. But, no, absolutely, I understand. But the, the point is, and you brought up the relevant example of 20 light years, but what if we're talking... A couple of thousand light years. Maybe we're talking at th- maybe five hundred light years. Well, so at that point, if you're moving close to the speed of light, then you're saying that distance isn't really an issue. No, I mean I don't know why you do it. You understand? Because there's a lot of places, a lot of ice cream parlors between here and there. But you know, I'm reminded of around the world in 80 days was considered uh, a pretty lofty goal. It took. Uh, the guy Magellan, uh, what his ship I think took over two years to go around. Mm-hmm. So around the world in 80 days was a pretty big advance, and you know the space station up there is doing it in 90 minutes. Uh, but there will be a next stage beyond that. It's not too useful to go too fast near the Earth, a seventh of a second at the speed of light to go around the planet. Well, what are you going to do in a seventh of a second? It's hard to meet somebody for lunch when you're going that speed, but. <laughs> Well, what I'm trying to say is that the universe, the galaxy, the neighborhood is old enough for there to have been many different civilizations developed, live and die, for there to be colonization and migration. And you see, that's one of the things that the city people don't want to consider, because maybe it takes a while to get to the first guy who's able to travel to the stars. But if he colonizes, then you got a lot of places that can do that, don't you? Absolutely. You see, that's a very different situation than they envision. We shouldn't send signals out because there's a big argument going on in the right. I know. I know where you're going with this. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to advertise that we're here, right? Yeah, but remember, they can't get here. So what are we worried about? (laughs) You can't have it both ways, you know. So I think they already know we are here because I think it is their duty as a Galactic Federation Protection Agency. <laughs> I just made that up. That sounds pretty good. GF, Galactic Federation Protection, GFPA. Yeah, we know that they will be uh, keeping track of things and making sure we don't get out there. 
I think we need a realistic look at A, we're not that important except to us. B, what we represent to anybody coming from somebody else is a primitive, from somewhere else, is a primitive society whose major activity is tribal warfare. So we do represent something, but it's not the kind of place that you sit down to have lunch with. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. That, remember they just discovered a new tribe down in Brazil, was it? Yep. Um, yeah, looking up at the plane. Yeah, yeah, that's all yeah it's sending arrows up at the plane. What do you mean? <laughs> just <laughs> yeah. like the rest of us earthlings, shoot first, ask questions later. <laughs> well, that was that. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Well, my point is that uh, here's a, a society in our own planet that is out of touch with what's going on. They have no idea what else is going on around them. And that's the way some of the SETI people and some of the other academics act, as if we know all that's going on in the neighborhood, just as the tribe thought it did, when in fact we don't. We are ignorant. We are isolated in our knowledge. That doesn't mean somebody else doesn't know about us. It means we don't know about them. I mean, well, these guys would love, love to think that the aliens would land and say, take me to your astronomers, because they know about the universe. Come on. No, no, no. They, they said astrologers. You see, you got it wrong. They landed oh. and they said, take us to your astrologers. Because <laughs> yeah, we, we have a reality show we're doing, and we need them to come on there to represent humanity. See, see the problem is... Needs- that's our, our right. Zoo needs new specimens. <laughs> here we go. Here, take Pamela Anderson. She's all yours. Here, take her. Well, the only thing <laughs> is here is that are you sure that's our best specimen? I don't know. After Angelina gives birth to her twins, you know, some of us may think she would be a better specimen. Brain tonic, the smart antidote to head fog, the world's first organic botanical-based caffeine-free think drink, designed for mental focus and clarity. Tastes great, super safe, with no caffeine crash. Just great fuel for your cranium. No chemical preservatives, no sugar, no fake anything. Check it out at www.maxsales.com slash tonic, that's spelled with a T-O-N-I Q. That's www.maxsales.com slash tonic. Again, the spelling T-O-N-I-Q. Check it out today. Hey, listeners, did you know that Fate is the oldest and best-known publication on the paranormal? Well, since 1948, Fate has provided their readers with fascinating in-depth articles on subjects like psychics and spiritualists, ghosts and hauntings, UFOs and aliens, as well as readers' true personal mystical experiences. For under $20, you can keep up with all the latest information. To subscribe, call now at one 800 728 2730 or visit fate's website at www.fatemag.com that's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com so what are you waiting for your fate awaits
Speaking of specimens, we're talking to Stanton Friedman, author of a new book, Flying Saucers and Science. A scientist investigates the mysteries of UFOs. Before we go on, Stan, what is the focus of this book? As I said before, it's not a sightings compendium necessarily. No. It does a lot of other things. It tries to do what I can't do in a lecture or an article or my monthly column in the MUFON Journal or whatever. It tries to deal with the larger questions in depth. I mean, in my lecture, I can't tell you about all the nuclear rocket programs. I can touch on that. I can't tell you in depth about the large-scale scientific studies that are dealt with in the book. I can't go into the science fiction writers. I can't go into SETI. So it's sort of my magnum opus. Instead of dealing with a specific case like the Roswell story, which is in uh, Crash at Corona, or the Majestic 12 documents, which is in Top Secret Magic, or the Betty and Barney Hill case, which is in Captured, which is doing quite well still. Fortunately, Kathleen Martin did most of the work. <laughs> Instead, it covers a lot of stuff that you just don't see covered in UFO books. I make it my magnum opus. Uh, who knows when I'll be able to write another book? And so, uh, for example, we haven't mentioned the fact that I have a whole chapter on press coverage of UFOs and on public opinion polls and on the science fiction writers who have not done well by flying saucers. I wanted to get into that part because that's very interesting. And by the way, it's not a big book. It's not a 600-page book. It's maybe 317 pages or so. It's a very quick read. I think you're really going to enjoy it. But let's ask about the science fiction. Over the years, we people in the UFO field, being so naive, feel like, you know, people who are into science fiction, well, maybe they would appreciate the possibility that there might be some science fact behind it. Isn't that cool? No. Science fiction people hate UFO people. You know, I, I walked into a, I guess I told it in the book, I walked into a science fiction bookstore in Berkeley. What could be more open-minded than Berkeley? And I said, where are your UFO books? This is years ago. We don't carry any of that trash, was essentially what the guy said. I spoke at Berkeley, University of California, Berkeley, and to their astonishment, we had 1,200 people for my lecture, <laughs> which I thought was fascinating. But, yeah, it, it's one of those things that it caught me by surprise when I first realized that the science fiction community was antithetical to the ufology. And I, I think the biggest reason, maybe, I think that they learned, labored long and hard to make science fiction respectable. Almost all of it involving, you know, space travel and aliens and all this kind of thing. And they got there when the space program went big, when we succeeded in, you know, going into orbit around the Earth and going to the moon and all this kind of stuff. And they look upon ufology as something that will tar their persona. With this crazy stuff, they're legitimate. You know, you, you look at the great respect in which the science fiction people have been held, and uh, and I talk about Asimov, Bova, and Clark. But when you start looking at what they say about UFOs and what they've written, and I, I had to get permission to use a lot of that stuff because I wanted to quote them directly rather than to paraphrase them. You know what I mean? So nobody could say I was misinterpreting what right, they were saying. Right. Right. And what comes clear is enormous prejudice, enormous ignorance, no mention of any of the large-scale data, scientific studies, a total lack of awareness, it seems, of the national security aspects of the question, and a lack of imagination about the why questions. You know, there's Isaac Asimov saying that either aliens would come here and make contact with us 
or they would stay hidden, and if they do neither, they're not coming here. Now, you can think of an awful lot of steps in between those two extremes. That's based on the ego-boosting prospect that we are worth communicating with, and that if you're 10,000 years ahead of us, that those beings would give a damn about what we have to say and how we say it. And that assumes a great ego on the part of the people who make that proclamation. Yeah. Yeah, and I I was surprised at something like Arthur C. Clarke trying to knock UFOs on the basis that, gee whiz, we've got radar systems now that can detect things, you know, as small as your hand, baseball, whatever, and making it sound as if we haven't detected any UFOs. And you wonder... Why does he think he would have a need to know for the data that's generated by the born classified business of the Aerospace Defense Commands of the world? They don't publish weekly reports how many uncorrelated targets we picked up last month, you know. And do they send that to science fiction writers or even science writers? Yeah. In other words, I, I thought it was worth talking about because nobody else seems to want to talk about it. I don't know another book where they delve into any length or any depth into the writings of the science fiction writers. And these stood in the way of many newsmen, uh, many journalists, if you will, and uh, academic scientists. Because, you see, it's kind of like in the early days of ufology. There were many astronomers who thought if there was anything to this, they would have heard it from Hynek and from Menzel. And they certainly got no impression that there was anything to flying saucers from those two for many years. Uh, Menzel forever. But so... They have had much more effect than just what their books say. As I mentioned, there was an article by Isaac Asimov in TV Guide, which was read by 14 million people. Now, boy, you want an influence. I don't think 14 million people listen to you guys, do they? Uh, No, sadly, no. Not this week, anyway. (laughs) (laughs) But you, you see what I mean. They have an influence that goes well beyond what it should. The same goes for the journalist, and I take uh, umbrage with the attitudes of the New York Times, the Washington Post, the major media, you know, 60 Minutes and stuff, with this attitude that, yeah, sure, if aliens were risen, that would be important, but uh, if it was important, we would know about it, and we don't, so it must not be, and why waste any time, money, effort, etc.? And that's a lazy man's out, and I'm not putting together a, uh, a conspiracy you know, the government sends a check to the New York Times to make sure right. they attack ufology at every time. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying people don't like to admit how mistaken they've been for a long period of time. Some marriages take advantage of that. You know? Good point. Now, now well, here's the thing. I'm saying. No, absolutely. And, and there, there are a couple of things we need to remember, though. Um, and I'm going to talk specifically about uh, Asimov and, and Arthur C. Clarke because... While both these men were, were science fiction writers, certainly in the case of Asimov, he wrote as much, if not more, about science fact than yeah. he did science fiction. So it's very important to state that this is a guy who is very deeply immersed in writing about science for the layperson, for the average person. Okay. Yeah. In the case of Arthur C. Clarke, uh, yes, he was a science fiction writer, but a lot of the things that he envisioned ended up becoming science fact. And one could argue that um, you know, his fiction was really based in things that were easily verifiable by the scientific method. So if these guys had a prejudice 
And this is specifically, especially with regards to Asimov, who, by the way, is a major personal hero of mine. And I, and I reconcile the fact that there are certain heroes that I, that I have that uh, have in some ways differing views on certain topics than I, than I do, because we're human beings, we're all distinct. In the case of Asimov, I think a big part of what was going on there was that Asimov was applying the scientific method as he applied it to many topics to UFOs and skimming the top of this. I mean, if, if one doesn't spend a significant amount of research time, and this would mean that this doesn't include uh, you, Stan, it doesn't include me, it doesn't include Gene. We're interested in this topic and we dig beyond the, the surface layer of it. If one doesn't do that, then it's very easy to walk away with the impression that the people who are engaged in talking about this are perhaps not as objective as they should be. And, and I'm not trying to make an excuse for Asimov here. I'm just saying that this is a guy who, when it came to any aspect, for example, the supernatural, Asimov was a man who was absolutely convinced, you close your eyes, that's the end of it, it's over. And in fact, he was very deeply involved with a major skeptical organization that these days gets a rap by many aspects of society, but at the same time, in many different areas, Asimov was a voice of reason. So with, with regards to this particular area, the problem is, and this ties into the media, which is that you know at this point, certainly, if we look at the media and the job they're doing informing us about the reality of our world, um, these are that, that reality is subject to such a strong regional and nationalistic interpretation and set of filters that you know you go outside of the country, and this is something I've done many you know not many times, but more than a few times in my life. I've gone outside of the country, looked at how our media informs us about just our own reality, much less any bigger picture, and the amount of disinformation is is vast. The amount of ignorance of the media is vast. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So one of the things that struck me about Asimov, it, it shook me up when I first saw it. He goes through this uh, attempt to show uh, how many civilizations there are in the galaxy, and we still don't know where he comes up with his number, but he calculates, again, in a way that you can't check on, the average distance between advanced civilizations. Yeah, it's, it's that's a such a hard. Number. Yeah, it's it's a big number. It's also a silly number. Well, yeah, but he also then he converts that to be. He tells you that they're distributed at random, but if they're distributed at random, then the distance to the nearest one is not the same as the average distance between them. It's far right. from it. Right. And now that is an unscientific approach to that problem. The question is meaningful. So, okay, you make some assumptions. How far are these guys? But don't tell me that if they're distributed at random that the average distance between them is the same as the distance to the nearest one. I did this uh, at that time. I calculated. I got the numbers. I was living up near San Francisco. The average distance for the 10 largest metropolitan areas in the country uh, was like 1,800 miles. The nearest one was less than 30 miles. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, there's statistics and there's reality. I mean, that's just, that's always been yeah. the case. And well, an honest statistician would admit that. And some people just say, don't bother me with statistics and don't bother me with facts. Yeah, my mind's made up. Sure. That's one of my rules for debunkers, you know. Uh, what the public doesn't know, I'm not going to tell them. Don't bother me with the facts. My mind's made up. If you can't attack the data, attack the people, which Isaac did, incidentally. Yeah. Some of his uh, nasty remarks 
about me and others, but anyway. And the fourth, of course, is do your research by proclamation, because investigation is too much trouble. And those rules hold, boy, I don't care whether you're talking about ghosts or an afterlife or near-death experience or any of that sort of stuff. Same rules apply. Well, you know, trying to, to interpret the unknown, you know, we always have this dilemma where we use the instrumentation and the methods that have worked in the past but the, the simple reality is that as we discover more aspects of the universe that are are true mysteries to us, we find that many of our methods don't hold. Our instrumentation doesn't work. Right. I mean, and we also have to remember we're parsing all of this through the limitations of our senses, which are extremely constrained. Even when we use instrumentation, we're still looking at this stuff with our rather imperfect, though potent brains with our eyes that, you know, it's fascinating because if you look at the, the range of the visual, uh, human visual perception, it is, and I've said this on the show many times, it's such a tiny slice of the electromagnetic spectrum. Oh, boy. That, yeah, to assume that, you, will, you know, if I don't see it, it doesn't exist. Well, gee, most of what exists you don't see. So, you know, and, and, and that, Stan, brings us to a whole other topic, which I think we'll talk about in the second hour because I'm going to, I think today on this show, I'm going to, I'm going to corner you into agreeing with something that you're not going to want to agree with, but I'm going to baffle you <laughs> with logic. No, I'm going All to right. do this. It's going to be fun. We're going to, we're going to have fun with this, and it'll it'll even make uh, your nephew scratch his head and say, how did they do that? Well, I think part of the thing, Stan, you know, since you and I go back, you know, many thousands of years, part of the thing is that he really wants to make your nephew, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, that's Paul Kimball one of our friends of the show, as Stan is a friend of the show. We're going to have a little fun and go a little beyond what's going to be normally expected this kind of show. But I'd be remiss in my duty here as co-host, long-suffering, underpaid co-host, not to ask you, and this might be a quick answer, or one that will lead to the beginning of the next hour before we go into what David wants to bring up. Disclosure, disclosure, disclosure. We've been hearing that in different ways since the era of Donald Kehoe. And, of course, we have that ex-conference devoted to disclosure. We have that yeah. certain project from that certain former emergency room doctor whose name we've mentioned too many times on this show. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think this is ever going to happen in our lifetime, disclosure, and what are they going to disclose? Well, you know, I think the only way it's going to happen is if some group of investigative journalists, young ones, put as much effort into blowing the lid off the cosmic water gate as was done with the political water gate. And mm -hmm. it wasn't just Woodward and Bernstein. There was one heck of a lot of money and time and effort and people behind them, you know, following the money, et cetera, et cetera. My goodness, why doesn't the press start with uh, General Bolander's comment about reports of UFOs which could affect national security are made in accordance with uh, JNAP 146 and Air Force Manual 55-11 and are not part of the Blue Book system. That's an incredible statement. So the hot stuff didn't go to Blue Book? Where did it go? Where is it? I have yet to see any media person pick up on that, have you? No. And if you don't, then the chances of getting at it are not very good, I'd say. That's right. That's right. Now, the, the one heartening subject, uh, <laughs> it'll sound like a strange thing coming from me, but I was particularly intrigued with the Pope's astronomer, if you will, the head of the Vatican Observatory. Yeah. And then the follow-up by the Pope when he was asked about the same thing, making sure that it was clear to Catholics that it's okay to believe in aliens. That was a remarkable sequence. 
at least I think it was, because one of the biggest reasons people don't want to believe in UFOs is they think it's not in the Bible. And, you know, therefore the Pope would have to be saying that, of course, you can't believe in flying saucer. Uh, that's heresy. But he didn't say that. I mean, I'd heard Father Balducci at a conference or two, uh, in translation, of course, say that, that it was okay. But when the, the head of the Vatican Observatory says that, and you wonder, and then the Pope gets asked at a conference, and he doesn't deny it at all, whether they're not hedging their bets over there, huh? Well, does the Vatican not have its own observatory? I'll tell you yeah, what, let's go into the Vatican's observatory in hour number two and find okay. it wherever it is we're going to search for the Vatican's observatory. So part two of the session, entitled The Search for the Vatican's Observatory, coming up with Stanton Friedman on the Paracast. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Yeti. For hour number two of the Paracast, we're talking to Stanton Friedman author of Flying Saucers and Science, brand new book. It's from New Page Publishing, and there are a lot of new pages in this book, I have to tell you that right now. But we were going to first search for the Vatican's observatory. Have we found it, David? Yeah, um, uh, basically uh, it, there's a headquarters uh, right outside of Rome for this, and then its, it's research center is uh, hosted by the Stewart Observatory at the University of Arizona in, in Tucson. So yep. apparently uh, their glass is out by Eugene. So here's the thing. So the Vatican has this this arm that deals with astronomy. They have an observatory. That being the case, one would think that the only reason for this thing really existing would be to try to essentially establish uh, the wonder of God's creation outside of the earth. So, I mean, does it really surprise you that much that they came out and made this statement? I, I was a little less surprised by it, though it was interesting. I thought to myself well, that it's actually kind of a logical progression. You know, the church has finally apologized for the Galileo business. It took him, what, 300 years? Yeah, that's all, And I yeah. think one of the reasons for having uh, observatories and keeping up with the astronomical community is to become aware of anything about the greater glory of God out there, et cetera, et cetera. And so I, I'm not disparaging that, incidentally. And I was impressed with the fact that they were willing to stand up and be counted. I mean, unlike Pat Robertson, for example, who thinks there is no other life outside of Earth than does, us. Does he also think that the planet's been around for 6,000 years or something like that? Because it's interesting, we actually got a letter on our tech show. Now, you think with technology, people are relatively advanced about such things. So we got a letter on the tech show saying that he'll never listen to David Bietney again, that if he's on, he won't listen to the show, because we have David on with something called the David Bietney Zone every few weeks on the other show. So David is always by my side when I need you know, the best guest on the planet. Yeah. I never talk to myself. I always talk to David. So he comes back with this thing about the Earth being around for 6,000 years. So I don't know. I think that yes, listening to a tech show. Just, well, yeah, this belief there's is ignorance all over the place. Now, the one last thing about God I'll say on, on this episode is that someone recently it just is a totally funny little aside. It's got nothing to do with UFOs, but um, someone recently tabulated in the Bible the number of humans either directly or indirectly destroyed by God, and the number of people either directly or indirectly killed by Satan. Now, this is the Bible, right? It's God's yeah. book. So in God's book, uh, God kills over 2 million humans. 
That's that's someone tabulated this, and they go through the specific breakdown. How many humans do you think Satan killed? Not many. Ten. So well, that's not many. <laughs> yeah, it's ten. Ten versus two million thirty-eight thousand three hundred and forty-four. Now, with that in mind, it sort of makes you wonder about the, the whole Bible thing a little bit. I mean, and this is not, we're not going to make this show about this topic, because it's not. Of course, uh, it's always interesting to see how people prescribe to belief systems. It's, it's kind of sad, it's a little frightening, because people don't want to think on their own. They want to be told what to think. And, and this is, of course, getting back to the media stand, this is like the problem with this topic. There is... So much complexity and confusion around the topic of UFOs that I think for people who are just overwhelmed by everything in their lives, and at this point, our reality is overwhelming on many different levels, yeah. people just find comfort in someone telling them, you know, a, an approved voice saying to them, uh, don't pay attention to this because this is crap, pay attention to the other thing. And, and this is the problem, of course, that this topic suffers in the eyes of the media in that they're told what to think. Now, now this leads into something I've been dying to ask you, which is that in the past two, three weeks, there's been all of this media attention given to uh, this Stan Romanek case and yeah. his, his little, uh, uh, little buzzing fly, this uh, Jeff Peckman fellow. Why yeah. do you think... I'm not even going to ask you what you think of the case because I, I, I think I'm going to guess what you think about this case. Forget about that. Why do you think this guy, Jeff Peckman, has received all of this media attention? Well, I think the media woke up a little bit on January 1st, 2007, when the Chicago Tribune article about the O'Hare case mm -hmm. got such an enormous amount of attention. There, it got more hits on their website, over a million, than right, anything, anything they ever else. published. Right. And it led to the list for four days, which has never happened before. And they made note of that. And newspapers and so forth are very worried about circulation. You know, just think of television. It used to be three networks. So you'd have yeah. one, uh, did, I remember one show, uh, the um, Unsolved Mysteries program about Roswell. First showing was 28.5 million people. Second one was 30 million people. Mm -hmm. And that uh, Peter Jennings mockumentary got uh, all of, uh, was under 14 million people. Hmm. So the powers are losing power. And so when they find an area that suddenly they realize, oh, hey, the public's interested in this stuff. Well, let's feed them. Let's feed them. Let's get more of this stuff. You know, look how many shows Larry King has uh, done on UFOs. And incidentally, plug, plug, I'm going to be on Larry King on uh, July 18th. I don't really? know who else is going to be on the show, but uh, who knows? A cast of characters. Do you know what the topic's going to be? Is this going to be no, another Roswell show? No, I, I have no idea what it's going to be, and they haven't told me, but they said, I said, you want me to say anything about my being? I'm, oh, sure, sure. Oh. We, can, we can use all the PR. And so uh, there's a recognition that in this crazy mixed-up political world, which we're in, and you must admit, when was the last time you saw a... Uh, a campaign like this past one between Clinton oh. and Obama. Oh, not good. Uh, yeah. It's been an awful long time, and uh, you yeah. know, every time you turn around, somebody's talking about it. So this is a welcome relief, I think. And uh, look at the Ministry of Defense story, how far that's gone. Not terribly accurately. The English uh, release of some data, limited data, I should say. And, you know, Fife Symington and all that stuff. And I'm just waiting for James Fox to come out with his beyond the blue 
uh, that ought to shake a few people up. But what I'm saying is uh, I think that it's a reaction to what else is going on in the world and a recognition of we need ratings, we need listeners, we need readers. This turns them on, fine, let's do it. You know, uh, if it bleeds, it leads. You remember that? Well, oh, yeah, abso- uh, absolutely. But but the thing is, we know about the, you know, there, there was that great coverage in terms of the amount of attention paid to the O'Hare case in that article in the Tribune. Of course, you had uh, a number of witnesses reporting a craft hanging over the terminal. There was some very interesting stuff that came out of that. Uh, the, another friend of uh, one of our unofficial third hosts, Jeff Ritzman, and I, um, were two of the uh, primary image analysts that contributed to the NARCAP report. You know, we looked at the images that came out, debunked pretty much all of them except for one. And in the one image that we found, some really interesting issues. Um, and, and that's actually part of that as part of the NARCAP report. But, uh, you know, with all of that said, if you look at, for example, the amount of media attention paid to the Stevensville sightings, yeah. And the amount of media coverage that that received. And then you contrast that to the fact that this guy, Jeff Peckman, with this guy, Romanek, was on, you know, on a Friday, he was on Larry King. The following Monday, he was on David Letterman. David yeah. Letterman. Then all of a sudden, he showed up on the Geraldo show, which my response was, I didn't even know Geraldo still had a show. But apparently he does. And this guy, Peckman, shows up. But it's interesting that it's this guy, Peckman, who, doing any due diligence on him, you realize that he's just he's just a joke, really. He's, the guy's a joke. Oh, so, you mean he's not an expert? Oh, I'm so yeah, yeah. No, he's you know we we did a little bit of searching uh, research and we found his Metatron Harmonizer product, which if you don't know about that, you can create the the divine field around you for 149 dollars. Credit no. card size technology. That's it. Do you have your credit card ready, Stan? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I need two. You understand so, exactly. One, one for each side of your person. My wife says I need about twenty. I think, but yeah, I didn't want to get into that. <laughs> you need one powered by a zero point field reactor. Well, well, I don't need one, not just powered by the zero point field, but powered by the zero point field for the zero point field. Oh, okay. Well, you, you've demonstrated something though, and, and that is that uh, the media are not doing due diligence about much of this at all. And no, actually, well, I actually got on the phone stand and I found out that uh, you know the real the reality behind this whole Peckman, uh, Romanek thing really is uh, is two other people. This guy Clay Roberts, who is essentially tying everybody's hands. He's the supposed documentary filmmaker. Oh who, yeah, yeah, him. And then contract uh, exactly. But then we also discovered that Nancy Talbot is involved in this. Oh, oh yeah. And, and then what what I uncovered about her involvement. And then, uh, you know, I had this nice little talk uh, with uh, one of the, the, the partners, supposed partners of BLT, the L in BLT, who basically said, that woman is totally misrepresenting my relationship with her, and it's all a lie. Uh, which, it's just, we're going to have him on the show at some point. He's, he's a little reticent yeah. to go public about that. But, but again, you start to dig into this, Stan, and what you discover is that it's an onion that as you peel away the layers, the layers get more and more rotten. They do. And it's just, it's very frustrating because, you know, when you talk about the media and you have, the, the, I, I loved your chapter on the way the media handles this. You have a combination of the incredible lack of professionalism and due diligence on the part of the media combined with the fact that the loudest, most obnoxious characters in the field are the ones, and the ones with the most outrageous stories are the ones that get media attention because 
they have outrageous stories, and it's yeah. it's, it, it's almost impossible to get a level-headed discussion about this. It is difficult, let's put it that way, and it's rare that you find a sensible discussion, partly because, as I point out in the book, we haven't even mentioned my website, which is a way to get the book, for goodness sakes. Excuse us, please (laughs) tell us where to go to stantonfriedman.com. Oh, I said it. That's it. (laughs) But... You know, as I point out there, the general rule is you got to have believers and debunkers, as if the two arguments, the two sides, were symmetric. Right. And they're never symmetric. You get people who do their work by investigation and others who do it by proclamation. And there is another sort of subtle problem. And I noticed it when I watched uh, Romanek on Larry King. When you're on the show, you have no idea what the listener is seeing there's no monitor there. Right. You don't know what kind of junk is being put up in, in front of the audience. And if I had seen some of the stuff that was on these last two times I was on, I would have yelped, boy, I'll tell you. You know, those aren't the Phoenix lights, you know. That kind those of are the flares, you, you, you morons. No, yeah, absolutely. Well, what drives me crazy, Stan, and I think this has been on a couple of shows you've been on, where they flash Billy Meyer photographs. It's like, stop it. Just stop this. Yeah. I mean, where do they keep throwing those images up? Do you talk to these people about this at all? I mean, do you, when you, when you talk to the producer about coming on, do you ever give them feedback about this? What's their response to that? I haven't, haven't had much chance to do that. Uh, there's two shows with Larry in the past year. Uh, you know, one, I, it was a quickie kind of thing. You know, you decide on a Wednesday that you're going to go out on Friday morning. And you're not talking to what they're all they're going to do. I didn't know who all was going to be on the show. I knew a couple of the people, but not all of them. And, right. and the same with New York. Uh, it was, there were fewer of us, so it was easier to handle. Uh, me and Jim Fox, but we didn't know who the opponents would be and who the other people would be who were on the show. And uh, I intend now that I've got a little uh, time before the July 18th date with Larry, I intend to be writing some more things. I'm hoping to make the book the focus of things, but I'm sure it won't be. Right. Uh, you know, he does have books that are foc- foci, <laughs> but uh, I doubt if he'll let mine be, and I hope he reads it at least and maybe has some ideas from it. But you have very little control of anything on these programs. and. Right. That's very frustrating, and people say, well, why would you go on if you don't know? You know, my feeling is better me than some people who may know less about the subject. What can I say? That's an egotistical, arrogant kind of statement. But, you know, do you remember that show, The McPherson Family, that was on, oh, dear, uh, about this family in Minnesota where supposedly they were abducted by aliens and left behind a video that shows the aliens. No. I, oh, well, I'll tell you what, you just raised a cliffhanger. And when we have a cliffhanger... Hi, this is Timothy Green Beckley, otherwise known as Mr. UFO, reporting live for the Conspiracy Journal. And we have a special offer for the listeners of the Paracast. Want to receive our publications for free? Conspiracy Journal and Bizarre Bizarre sent to you via snail mail. And all you have to do is email me at MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MRUFO at WebTV.net. And we'll send you two of the most exciting publications 
but we do need your actual address because these are physical publications and you'll enjoy all the latest articles by some of the leading researchers in the field as well as up-to-date information on the latest book and videos and it's all for free or drop us a line Mr. UFO at webtv.net This is the Paracast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. You never know what's going to happen next. All we can tell you is that we have Stanton T. Friedman on the PowerCast. He has a new book out called Flying Saucers in Science. And you go to StantonFriedman.com, which is linked at thepowercast.com. So it comes at you in every place, every which way to find out more. Now you've got my attention. Stan, tell us more. Well, I got a call uh, a few years back from a guy in Hollywood working for Dick Clark Productions. I mean, if you can't trust Dick Clark, who can you trust, you know? No. And uh, they were wanted to update, improve, finish off a program about UFO abductions. And could I come out to California and be interviewed for the program? And, well, I thought about it, and I thought, gee, it's wintertime here. It's nice in California. I'd get a chance to see my daughter, who lives in Southern California, so that would be nice. Sure, why not? Get frequent flyer points, you know. And so I went out there, and I got asked sensible questions by a woman. We were in a studio in a house, but okay. And she had obviously done her homework. Then I watched the show. Now, I didn't get shown this supposed film. I didn't get asked about this supposed film, Left Behind. You'd think that would be the most valuable film ever made. You know, yeah. Mm -hmm. Showing alien beings. Wow. Anyway, I got asked questions. They used what I said. They even used it in the advertising. But then they got tricky. They would show what looks like an electromagnetic effect, and they'd have me talking about electromagnetic effects. And several different instances of this kind of, as if I were supporting them. Right, corroborating and, their statements, yeah. Yeah, and it turns out some polls show that half the people who watched the show thought that this was a real abduction mm. and that this, this stuff was real, even though at the end of the show, very quickly, they showed the cast member's name, Alien 1, Alien 2, Alien 3. Oh, jeez, seriously? Oh, and I man. got attacked all over the place. Uh, and uh, Kevin Randall even said, you know, you should have had better sense, uh, basically, to, to be on a show with uh, the guy who did the alien autopsy. Kvyat. Kvyat, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, well, as it happens, Kvyat had nothing to do with the show, you'll understand. So I finally got on Coast to Coast Radio. Anyway, I got on just to explain how they do this sort of thing how uh, television shows are interested in putting on a show, not on finding truth. And as an example of that, I mean, this show was an egregious example. And people say, well, why don't you sue them? Hey, you know, suing enriches lawyers, especially for libel if you're a public figure in the United States. And I'm arguably a public figure because I see myself on YouTube all the time. <laughs> or people refer me to stuff that's on YouTube. I don't know where they're getting it from. But uh, anyway, uh, suing is of no benefit whatsoever. Uh, I mean, if I had six letters from six colleges say, we hereby cancel your you know, $5,000 electric contract uh, because of that stupid show, then I would have a case. But the, those things don't happen. Anyway, I pointed out that as a good example, uh, with Ted Koppel, 
Nightline, you know, who could be more respectable than Ted? Uh, Philip Class and I appeared on the show. Did we see Koppel? Never saw him. Not even a monitor. Heard him through my ear. Can we talk to each other? No. Could I bring in? I had blacked out and whited out documents or some of the book, which deal with the question which was supposed to be the government cover-up. They wouldn't allow me to bring in those documents. This is a search for truth. You know, and you had no visual contact at all, even by a monitor, with Koppel. And people say, what difference does it make? You're used to doing radio. Yeah, but when you're on television, you'd kind of like to know what the audience sees. Uh, is he lifting an eyebrow? You know. Uh, yeah, body language, the, basic stuff. Sure, sure. Yeah, basic stuff. And, you know, Phil Class and I are sitting two feet apart. You watch your camera and you watch yours. Don't look at each other. Yeah. What kind yeah. of a conversation is that? <laughs> you know? Well, I made mean, for television. Is... Made for television. That And that's yeah. what television is. It's a tightly controlled pseudo-reality. That's all. Yeah, I was asked, what was Ted like? And I have no idea what he was like. I never saw him. Uh, you know, people, how, how can you do a show? Well, that's the way they do it. He could have been in Timbuktu for a minute. Yeah, anybody who's worked in television knows that reality. Let, let's get back to UFOs, because that's why people listen yeah. to you on the Paracast. So here's what I want to ask you, Stan. You make it very clear in your book, and in, in many books you've written, and in many of the talks you've given, and in many of the radio interviews, you make it clear that you don't say, you don't claim that Every UFO that is seen is an extraterrestrial craft. You say that there's some small percentage of what is seen that does, in your opinion, represent extraterrestrial life visiting yes. the planet, right? This is something you say over yep. and over. All right. You're conservative and you qualify what you say by stating that some small percentage that not everything <laughs> is, and, and people, of course, instantly create a link between UFO and extraterrestrial. They usually said, you know, you know there, there's UFO, there must be aliens in that. And, and that, that has, in the minds of the masses, that is a connection that exists. So here's my question for you. If you say that and you mean it, are you willing to agree to the potential that some of those UFOs are extraterrestrial? At the same time, do you agree to the potential of some of those UFOs presenting non-human life that maybe is something odder than extraterrestrial, perhaps interdimensional. Do you just agree that it's a possibility? Well, sure. I'd be astonished if aliens weren't far more advanced than we seem to be in the question of dealing with the spirit world, the larger world out there, call it ghosts and uh, reincarnation and all, uh, you know, that whole world of odd phenomena, if you will. Yeah, I paranormal. Astonished. Okay, yeah, that's a good word as any, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I, I would be astonished if they weren't into all of this stuff. I'm interested in all that stuff. So, you see, when I say some UFOs are alien spacecraft, and that's why the book is flying saucers in science rather than UFOs in science. It's going to ask I don't have to that. deal with those other things. Yeah. But when I say that, I'm not saying that everything exciting or interesting or whatever is an alien spacecraft at all. And certainly I'm not saying that we're limited to this or that method of propulsion. You see, it doesn't matter how they get here. The question is whether they're here. Right, sure. 
you know, how do you, if you were to take a, my little wristwatch here, my high-tech $15 wristwatch, uh, it would be a remarkable device, wouldn't it, to somebody uh, 80 years ago? Yeah. He'd know it was a watch, though, even if he couldn't figure out how it worked. Yes. I mean, it's got a couple of chips in there, you know, and all good things, and alarm, and, you know, any of our modern technology is real regardless of whether you know how it works or not. Sure. And so, yeah, I allow plenty of room for them being able to pop from here to there. I don't know how to do that. But it, doesn't, it isn't required that I know how to do that to say that what we're dealing with is intelligently controlled extraterrestrial means not from Earth. It, it doesn't say it's from a particular place. And it certainly says nothing about how it got here. You know, I, I learned to deal with the small percentages when I worked in industry, radiation shielding, most of the radiation that's produced in a nuclear reactor gets absorbed in the shield. Right. Now, you learn very quickly that your focus has to be not on that which gets absorbed, but on that which gets through, because that's sure. what kills the people walking that's by. That's the problem. Absolutely. Yeah. So most uh, UFOs are of little interest, and who gives a darn? It's the rest that matters. And, you know, we're accustomed... How many isotopes are fissionable? A very small percentage, you know. And the whole nuclear world is full of the exceptional is where your focus is. The medical world is. Most chemicals are certainly not useful in the treatment of disease. They'll kill you before they'll cure you. But if you're sick, you want the ones that'll cure you. Who cares about the ones that won't? So I kind of take that same attitude about flying saucers. The, the best cases deal with things for which I find the easiest by far explanation to be intelligently controlled extraterrestrial spacecraft. Now, that's one place where my nephew and I uh, disagree. He talks about the extraterrestrial hypothesis. I don't use that phrase. It may show up in a book someplace as an example of what not to do, but I'm not talking about hypothesis. I'm saying it's a reasonable conclusion. In many legal situations, you establish you know, the preponderance of the evidence, if you will. It, it doesn't need to be absolutely pinned down, you know, show me a body, the Michael Shermer approach. Well, in your uh, case here, you're coming to this conclusion because there's no evidence that there is any civilization on Earth that can produce that sort of technology, that these are technological achievements, technological craft. But beyond that, when you talk about galactic neighborhoods and stuff, that is speculation. Obviously, we don't know. We won't know until well, they come here not. and say, take us to George Bush. We want to give him a flashing send-off or something like that. Well, you know, and the only particular place that I mentioned in the whole book, I believe, as a source, is Zeta-1 and Zeta-2 Reticuli. And if you read the book Captured, use the Betty and Barney Hill UFO experience to give the full title by myself and Kathleen Martin, Betty's niece, you'll see why I say that those particular UFOs, aliens, originate there. But because of the star map. Brain Tonic, the smart antidote to head fog, the world's first organic botanical-based caffeine-free think drink designed for mental focus and clarity. Tastes great, super safe, 
with no caffeine crash. Just great fuel for your cranium. No chemical preservatives, no sugar, no fake anything. Check it out at www.maxsales.com slash tonic. That's spelled with a T-O-N-I-Q. That's www.maxsales.com slash tonic. Again, the spelling T-O-N-I-Q. Check it out today. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. On the Paracast, we have another 35 minutes or so to spend with Stan Friedman, author of Flying Saucers in Science, a scientist investigates the mysteries of UFOs. Now, do you have any opinion about the oft-stated theory in some circles that the things that the UFO occupants allegedly communicate to us are deceptive? Well, I, I would say, uh, for all I know, they, everything they say is a lie. As somebody once said, uh, two groups you can't, Bud Hopkins, I guess, two groups you can't trust what they say, aliens and the government. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's like if you've taken a psychology course, every once in a while the instructor might try a little experiment without your knowing about it. You know, have somebody run into the room, flash a gun, and shout something, and then leave. And uh, he's in on it, but you're not, and you try to figure out what's going on. So I, I leave plenty of room for deception. And, you know, it's one of the things I've had people say, well, why did the aliens tell Betty and Barney that they were from Zeta Reticuli? The answer is they didn't. They gave no clue at all other than Betty seeing the star map and Marjorie Fish's wonderful work to pin it down as to what the heck it means. But, yeah, I, I don't find a lot that they say to be terribly believable or to matter. Uh, you know, I think they're running experiments on the recipients. You know, how do these people respond to these crazy ideas? So maybe they threw up the map there figuring that maybe the stupid earthlings will ask a question. What is that map? Are you trying to tell us where you come from? Well, that's not the way the sequence went. You remember? I know that. I know that. I'm just kind of, I'm yeah. just kind of giving yeah. you an uh, offhand suggestion. It would be interesting to know how... You see, I, I think we have experimenters coming here. We have the psychologists. We have the guys who check the, the physiologists. We have the language people. I think there are all kinds of, you know, you got a, a bus with researchers. Uh, might as well take the bus when it's going that way. You need two more credits for your course. <laughs> uh, so I, I, don't, I don't know of anything that they have said that I take for gospel. I mean, I, I think it's cute that they didn't understand why Barney's teeth came out and Betty's didn't, you know. But th that's not really passing on much information other than their curiosity or their ignorance, if you will. No, I don't look toward uh, the truth from on high as being words from aliens, particularly. Uh, I do know, I remember a, a Canadian woman uh, who had a conversation after an abduction uh, and why why me because uh, you're easy to keep track of that's a sensible answer you know if we all give out different brain waves and you know I'm, I, I've got to look it up sometime what was the first reaction when a guy said look there are electrical waves coming from the brain and somebody said come on where's the battery that's ridiculous you know <laughs> well you know it would be a sort of strange thing a strange discovery just like the guy who said that a certain kinds of bacterium causes ulcers. 
he spent years trying to convince people. And it turns out he was right, but uh, meanwhile, how could it be? You know, we would know if that, that, I love that answer. If that were true, we would already know it. <laughs> well, here's a question for you, Stan. When, when we talk about these, the star map and the craft, there is a prevailing uh, uh, feeling that, uh, and I just want to just want to get your take on this. I, 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 I did recapture it. I don't have the book in front of me at this moment. Um, so I don't remember what you wrote about this or, or, or what Kathleen wrote about this. But there are people who say, well, the idea that an advanced piece of technology like an interstellar craft would have some sort of a visual diagram showing showing this kind of information would be silly that a um, that a navigation system would not utilize this kind of information and when i heard that the first thing i thought about was well okay maybe that's true maybe that this they're not being shown a chart from a navigation system Maybe they're just being shown a chart as part of the multimedia part of the onboard computer. Um, maybe they're just being shown something they use for entertainment. I assume aliens have a form of entertainment, too. Well, I'll tell you something. A couple of years yeah. ago, I went to China. And before I went, I was looking at different ways of getting there. You know, it's a long way from Fredericton, New Brunswick, right? Oh, yeah. And it, I wound up being able to take a nonstop flight from Newark, New Jersey to Hong Kong. And I looked at a globe. It wasn't a way to navigate there. I wanted to get some idea of right. what would the path of this plane be. Sure. You know, it doesn't tell me where the drugstores are, but um, when you're on board and they show you the map of where you are, you know, and the yeah. altitude you're flying and all that stuff. And at one point, it was clear we were over Siberia. And it was only from looking at a globe that I got a good handle on that. Oh, I see. Well, I'll be darned. Look at that. In other words, it didn't get me there. It gave me a clue. And also, I was going to another city, Dalian, in China. And again, I could look at the globe and say, oh, I see where that is compared to Hong Kong. It's not that far and all that <laughs> stuff. So what I'm saying is a city map of Hong Kong was useful, too. You know, when I'm, we're going to meet somebody. But you have many different kinds of maps. I travel a lot. I get city maps. I get state maps. I get national maps. And occasionally I actually look at a globe. The globe isn't used for me to, to guide me there. You know, I don't, my GPS isn't, I don't have a GPS, but isn't hooked to the globe, you know. So what I'm saying is, Betty asks a question. The guy says, huh, well, you know, she won't know what I'm talking about, but shows her that and Betty asked questions and it was only because of Marjorie Fisher's work that we got any meaning out of that at all and the proof of the pudding was in, in Marjorie's work as far as I was concerned it made sense when you got finished with it only one pattern made sense and that was rather astonishing that all the stars in the pattern are sun-like stars and that they're all in a plane which is quite remarkable and, uh, you know, and it turns out that we have these remarkable base stars. And you won't find any mention of those previous to her work as being the closest to each other pair of sun-like stars in the neighborhood. And also a billion years older than the sun. 
Nobody knew any of that stuff. But we don't necessarily know that that's where they came from. That just might be what they had available. Maybe they come from an entirely different place, but they don't want us to know that. Now, that's another well, point, too. If they're, if they're here in fairly large numbers, wouldn't they have bases here, or bases on the moon, ways sure. to get here really quickly? They don't have to go back and forth to oh, Zeta Reticuli or Andromeda or whatever they come from. Well, let's not mix a star and a galaxy. I understand that, but I'm thinking in terms, who knows well, where they could be coming from anywhere. If they're a civilization that's you, millions of years older than us, it may not have a problem with distance. Let me give you an example. My longest lecture tour when I was a young guy a few years ago, <laughs> a lot of years ago, was I did 25 lectures in 35 days in 15 states. Just about all were colleges, I guess. And you know what? I didn't go home to point A, back to home to point B, back to home to point C, etc. I left home, and I got back at the end of the 35 days. I went from A to B to C to D, etc., down the, down the tubes. And so I'm not saying these guys came here directly, and I certainly am not saying right. that they don't have bases. As a matter of fact, in one place in the book, I talk about what they might be doing here. Uh, somebody didn't like my idea of suggesting they might be coming here for a vacation and, uh, you know, spend two weeks near Earth uh, as a punishment. Uh, but I'd point out if they're working in the asteroid belt, for example, recovering an asteroid with a lot of nickel or other good materials in it, just ripe for the plucking, they might want to take a week's vacation down near Earth. Why not? Or on the backside of the moon, as somebody mentioned? Oh, I'm not saying the guys that picked up Betty and Barney just popped over from Zeta-1 or Zeta-2 Reticuli, and they're going right back with their test data. Not at all. I think that that's not how thinking beings do business. They go from point A, you know, take advantage. There's a gas shortage. You want to well, go you from wanna, A to B to C. You want to amortize the effort. Actually, it's a very human-centric point of view to think that. They'd be coming here specifically for us and then leaving and going home. I have no reason to believe that at all. Right, right. No, I, yeah, I don't think you'll get any uh, any argument from us on this, Dan. That, that seems pretty clear. Good. And, and that's not even attributing human motivation or human methodology. That just seems reasonable and efficient. You know, that, yeah. That, you know, that, Why that's how that energy, works. you know? Well, and, and Earth is a fascinating place. Earth is a really fascinating place, so why not have it be the case that people are coming here for entertainment or distraction or diversion? Now, th there's another question, though, I'd like to ask you, which is, as we look at uh, the contemporary era of UFOs, uh, one of the things that, that we find is that, A, we have flaps of activity that are uh, uh, separated by time and space. We have uh, flaps, things like uh, the flap in, in, in France that was in 1953 and 54, if I'm not wrong. We have things like the uh, rather remarkable flap in Mexico City that has started in the early 90s and that to some extent is still going on. We actually recently have had a very bizarre uh, flap of sightings in Argentina. Not only do we have uh, these, these, uh, these periods of cyclical increase and decrease in activities, but also, if we look at the history of this, we have this uh, differentiation of craft morphology. Early on, we had things like a lot of disc-shaped craft. Then uh, cigar-shaped craft came into the picture, and uh, that's of particular interest to me because of a mass sighting I was part of in Caracas, Venezuela, in 1974. 
which at some point I'll, I'll talk to you about offline because I've had no success in uh, in locating any report of this in any of the mainstream UFO uh, media. That's a whole other topic. But then lately, what we've had are these triangular craft that have been appearing, like over Stevensville, and the triangular craft that was seen, the real Phoenix episode from 10 years ago, which was the yeah. large triangular craft. Nothing to do with the flares later that evening. And we assume at yeah. this point that people who are interested in the topic already know about that. And uh, then there are the Lin Katai followers who are looking for Space Brothers to serve them uh, bagels and griminas. Whatever. You know, that that's fine. Let the people want to play in the sandbox, play in the sandbox. Have your toys. Just stay away from us. So, looking at the flaps, looking at the differentiation in the morphology of the craft, what do you think that what clue is that for us besides the idea that maybe there's more than one species or type of being visiting us? Well, that could certainly be a, a good clue to that. But I, I would throw in at least one other thing, and that is that uh, when you have these reports of the huge objects, mm -hmm. you know, half mile to a mile, right. that seems to me to be directly correlatable, if you will, with uh, aircraft carriers and little airplanes. I brought that up on, on the show more than a few times, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. it makes sense to me. and. You know, that you'd have different technologies. The, you, you don't refuel the reactors in an aircraft carrier for 18 years. You better refuel the planes every two or three hours, or if they can fly that long at full speed. And there are two different media between the stars and near the planet and all the rest of that. But also, I think we might have many different models. I mean, if you look at a, a turnpike, say the New Jersey turnpike, which Lord knows there's loads of vehicles going down it, you got your big ones, your small ones, your powerful ones, your not powerful ones, your little ones. I don't think they allow uh, motorcycles on there, but anyway, <laughs> how many axles uh, would be the limit? Maybe seven? Uh, I don't know. So they may be here for different purposes. And again, it depends on whether you think of a one-up, an event that happened once, quite remarkable, or it's going on all the time. And the more things are going on all the time, the more variety you have. It's not just cars. Look at planes. Look at spacecraft. Sure. Look at how different some of the things we put up in space look. Absolutely. It's on function, you know, mm -hmm. and maybe beauty thrown in there someplace. But And, you know, I remember um, I was asked to give a talk at uh, NASA Downey, uh, North American Rockwell, where they built the command modules for Apollo. And somebody heard me at a McDonnell Douglas uh, management club. Would I speak to their NASA group over there? Sure. So I go over there. They take me on a tour of the plant. And I, I've got pictures. I use them as PR pictures for a while of me standing next to the Apollo 12 command module. And you that's know what? It, yeah, that's in the book. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And I put it in there for fun, kind of, because that thing looks a heck of a lot more like a flying saucer, round, blunt body than like the old ideas that I had when I was young of a high-speed aircraft, pointy nose, sharp wings, you know, like the X-15 or something like that. Isn't that what you've got to look like if you're going to come in the atmosphere at uh, 25,000 miles an hour? Uh, well, it isn't, no. It, it's very different because we're different purpose and smart people, maybe because they studied flying saucers, of course. Uh, that's a possibility, incidentally. We did wind tunnel tests on disc-shaped craft, uh, 1947 at Wright-Patterson. So it, you, you're trying to look around at the whole picture here, and you see that there's variety. As long as you've got a lot of different 
vehicles. You go to a big a port, you got a few classes of ships that are there, and you got a lot of little ones too. No, absolutely. That so so with that in mind, though, let's now extend this a little further, because what we've had, and and this is a historically reoccurring theme. And this is my own personal experience, and also thinking about these huge triangular craft. Um, you, you use the case, the example of an aircraft carrier, which I think is very valid. Air, aircraft carrier takes a bunch of, 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 of smaller of planes and makes it so that they can be quickly deployed to a specific area that is far away from the uh, from the the nation from which the aircraft carrier originates. Yeah. All right. Now. We look at these reports of these enormous triangular craft, in some cases the enormous cigar ships, and they're, uh, they're in our atmosphere. In, in the case of the, the large uh, triangular craft uh, from that night in Phoenix, that this thing was really, really low and yeah. was also visible. Now, not to uh, ascribe human motivation or methodologies to the alien mind, but the only reason, if you've got an aircraft carrier, you're going to keep it a certain distance from the coast of a country unless you want to intimidate the country, at which point you'll put that aircraft carrier just inside a visual range so people can see that and go, oh, geez, that thing is big and menacing. Now, What's your opinion? And, and there's no answers here. It's just opinions. What's your opinion about why, possibly, some of these large triangular craft or large cigar ships are in the atmosphere, are at low altitude, and make themselves visible? What, what do you think that's about? Before Stan tells us about alien psychological warfare. Hey, listeners, did you know that Fate is the oldest and best-known publication on the paranormal? Well, since 1948, Fate has provided their readers with fascinating in-depth articles on subjects like psychics and spiritualists, ghosts and hauntings, UFOs and aliens, as well as readers' true personal mystical experiences. For under $20, you can keep up with all the latest information. To subscribe, call now at one 800 728 2730 or visit Fate's website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. So what are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the podcast. Send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and Dana. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. <laughs> on the Paracast, we're talking to Stanton Friedman, author of Flying Saucers in Science, a scientist investigates the mysteries of UFOs. You'll find out more information. You can place an order for the book. And if you do it from stantonfriedman.com, I expect Amazon sends Stan a check, and we want to help him, you know, in his senior years. So let's do that, ladies and gentlemen, order the book direct from Stan's website. So let's talk about 
alien psychological warfare. They're doing nothing to hide themselves when they have these huge craft about. What do you think? Well, I think uh, a couple of things. First of all, if you're an alien coming here, you know that we know you're there. When you're picked up on radar, and we have picked up uh, alien spacecraft on radar many times, you know when you're being tracked. You know, you've got smart instruments. We know when somebody's mm-hmm. painted us, as the expression goes. So uh, you're certainly right. They know we know they're here. Uh, intimidation sounds like a good reason. Uh, they may be part of a, a mission to get a bunch of little guy, little craft, someplace where they can do something useful. You know, in the G sector tonight, guys, you're behind schedule. Take over a dozen other guys and let's get that work done. You know, in other words, I'm trying to be pragmatic. They know we know they're here. That's the first thing. Second, they seem to be able to handle anything we can put up after them. Sure. And, you know, I'd love to hear from people who are aware of the more than the seven instances that I mentioned that I've been aware of in the book where UFOs apparently destroyed the guys who were attacking them, I'll put it that way. Uh, Remember, the orders were issued to shoot them down if they don't land when instructed to do so. And I bet a group of cartoonists could come up with more cartoons to match that line. (laughs) You know, whatever it's supposed to mean. So we're at an uneasy peace with aliens, alien visitors. I don't know whether there's been meetings between our guys and their, you know, your people and my people should get together. I don't know about that. All I know is they know we know they're there. And we know they know that we know they're there. So there's some kind of a, call it an uneasy piece. We've stopped trying to shoot them down, maybe, whatever. They may be mining the planet. I mean, uh, not mining, but looking, uh, prospecting on the planet. Arizona does have a number of military bases there. You can think of all kinds of plots to go with that. Sure. Uh, they're going to get together with the other race, and uh, we launch our attacks from this point, guys. Check it out. Will you see if it's an okay place? You know, uh, who knows? The uh, analogy I like to use is the American Indians, uh, North American natives, if you will, back in the 1500s or so, must have been terribly confused by all these big sailing ships. Whoever saw why is it? It's not a canoe. How can it possibly move? You know, I'd love to see a story based on that. <laughs> but where are all these guys coming from? And you find out that some of them are out to steal your gold. Some of them are out to convert you to some crazy religion. Others are there looking at plants. They took back, what, potatoes and tobacco and tomatoes? I don't know. Other goodies from the New World. In other words, there was a, a very confusing picture of what the visitors, strangers, aliens, if you will, wanted, where they were from, whether any of them had anything to do with others of them. I can imagine that there were battles seen by guys on shore of the Spanish ships uh, attacking the English ships, that sort of thing, and wondering what's going on with these crazy people. (laughs) You know, so we'd have a great confusion because we don't have the full picture. Right. You know, what's going on here? And it's kind of like when I talk about the little ones and the big ones and the motherships and the Earth excursion modules. When I am going to Roswell, which I am uh, for the big festival, I will drive to an airport, catch a small plane to a bigger city, 
change planes and get another plane, and then I will drive 200 miles at the other end to get there. Unfortunately, I don't go into my backyard and get onto an airplane and zip off to Roswell. Would that I could. Beam me up, Stan. Forget it. Yeah. Yeah, what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that we can see how complicated life gets when you're able to fly and you want to go from A to B. It's not simple-minded. That's why there are travel agents and big books. You know, you go to Expedia or something to find out how to do it. And we sometimes forget the real world in which we live. We want simple answer. We equate a huge mothership, for want of a better phrase, with a little Earth excursion module. If you look at... Ted Phillips, more than 4,000 physical trace cases, where people in more than 70 countries have observed saucers on or near the ground, and after they leave, they find physical changes. One-sixth of the cases involve reports of beings. Uh, this is for those people who say there is no physical evidence. Well, I've had lab tests done on the soil, and there certainly is physical evidence. Definitely. Absolutely. But the, the point is, when you start looking at these cases, you see there's such a variety of things going on. And some of them seem to be picking up small animals, some plants. Who knows what the others are doing? You know, getting ready for the big banquet next week. Uh, we got to talk to the chefs. I mean, I don't know what's going on. So I find it very interesting as an indication of something else. This is one of the reasons that I think that there's a lot of societies out there that they've been traipsing around between star systems for eons. And this is no big deal for them. You know, we like to think we're special. Well, I see no reason to think we're special. I mean, we may be more destructive than most. I wonder if there's been a competition. After all, World War II, Earthlings killed 50 million of their own kind and destroyed 1,700 cities. Now, I wonder if that's uh, high on the lists of the local community, so to speak, uh, as stupidity personified, I, I would think, but, you know, I'm biased. I don't think that's the way thinking beings ought to act. But it's the way we did act. Mm -hmm. And if aliens had no better reason than to be wary of Earthlings, look at our track record. Well, exactly. And when I brought that up to Greer, he got all indignant, and I, I just said to him, look, you know, you have to be realistic about things if you want to try to understand the nature of reality. Realism is a good place to start. And, but in the book, of course, you also talk about things like, you know, why, the, why do non-human entities come here? Well, perhaps there's something about the diversity of life on the planet that is of interest. And maybe, indeed, uh, you know, in the same way that the seed bank was created up in, uh, it wasn't Iceland, but it was way up north. Uh, I don't have the data in front of me. That seed bank that uh, where they're storing yeah, all that stuff. You, you know what you're talking about. Um, yeah. You know, maybe maybe the Earth actually ends up being a place where it's interesting in that there is a really incredible array of species on the planet. I've mentioned this on the show before, but um, there was a fascinating interview with uh, E.O. Wilson, uh, where uh, he basically uh, said that in his estimation, something around eighty-five to ninety percent of the species of life on the planet have not yet been discovered which is mind-boggling when you think about it, but when yeah. when you know it's E.O. Wilson saying, and it's not like it's a, an armchair researcher, this is one of the world's preeminent leading biologists who says, hey, yeah. this is the deal. And so if you think about that, and you think about the vast variety of life we know about, and here's the leading biologist on the planet saying, we haven't discovered the vast majority of life, 
maybe there's something that's interesting about an environment where you have that kind of diversity of life that ends oh, up yeah. being of interest, right? I mean, that that's probably a fairly safe assumption. But now, Stan, with that in mind, you also then have, and I've been I've been meaning to bring this up with you. You have uh, Dr. Jacques Vallée, fascinating guy, who uh, you know has been involved has been involved with this stuff. I think as long as you have more, uh, more. So here's a guy who started his his research work and his interest in this uh, as a very strong supporter of sorry to bring it up the extraterrestrial hypothesis <laughs> later as he did more work though he started to say that he felt that that potential explanation was simply not complex enough and one of the things he pointed out was if you look at you know do the statistics and come up with the number of times craft have probably landed on the planet uh, he comes up with a number that's really high, potentially more than a million landings. And he says, you know, if they're coming here uh, to just, like, collect samples, it seems like that's too many times. I mean, what is your response to what Jacques Vallée did and also to his eventual, not to say change of heart, but sort of expansion of his Control ability? system? <laughs> well, yeah, sure. What do you think about that? Well, uh, in the first place, I have a great deal of respect for Jacques. He uh, spoke out long before most people did and collected a heck of a lot of information. Mm -hmm. In the second place, we have to remember the built-in prejudices of the astronomical community against extraterrestrial travel. I couldn't, could never get Alan Hynek, for example, who was Jacques' mentor, if you will, colleague after a while, uh, yeah. to look into the literature on interstellar travel. Uh, he just was dead set against it for some reason, and if he can't get here from there, then there must be something else going on, you know. Third, I would like to point out that when I was uh, taking biology in high school, I cut up a frog. Yeah. Everybody so, in the uh, class cut uh, up a frog, uh -huh. and every year, everybody in the biology classes cut up frogs, and across the planet, they're, boy, were we doing damage to the frog population. Oh, yeah. And you might say, well, what's the point? You do it once or twice? What the hell? How many times do you need to do it? Well, it, it was a learning experience. Each of us has to learn on his own score, so to speak. Beyond that, though, I think I tend to, something you said before about the diversity of species here, mm -hmm. I point out that we do have a great diversity, and you could have a herd of prize cattle that all have the same father. And don't tell me that's a lot of bull, because I won't laugh. <laughs> Put on boom. Ow. Sorry. That we have an undifferentiated genetic system here, if you will. Everybody's got different genes, so to speak. And I'm particularly interested in this. I have a son who's a hemophiliac, and only one in 10,000 has hemophilia. Hmm. And there are other um, genetic problems that are, occur much less often than that. You know, one in 100,000. So if you're trying to look for what the heck gives with the genetic stuff here on this planet, you're going to have to pick up an awful lot of specimens and check things out. Hey, we uh, are about to check out this episode because we're just about out of time. Unfortunately, we don't have time to cover any more yeah. ground. But before we let you go, why don't you tell listeners one more time quickly about your new book and where to get a copy and where to get okay. in touch with you if they have things to say, things yeah. to talk about? Well, the, the simplest thing is to go to my website, www.stantonfriedman.com, 
tells you how to order the book with PayPal or by sending a check for $19 to Stan Friedman, Post Office Box 958, Holton, H-O-U-L-T-O-N, Maine, which is M-E, 04730-0958. The one advantage of getting it from me is that you'll get an autograph free, no extra charge. And I send books out uh, priority mail. I don't know what good it does sometimes, but <laughs> not book ring in general. And the title is Flying Saucers and Science. But there are other books there, too, that you might be interested in. And some DVDs. Would you believe I've gone modern? I have three DVDs, and I'm still using slides in my lectures. Well, now you have to go Blu-ray so we have high definition. Uh, StanFriedman.com. The book is called Flying Saucers and Science. A scientist investigates the mysteries of UFOs. And as Stan says, if you buy the book from his website, which means he gets a little more change, you know, the, to yeah. pay the bills and everything like that, he'll sign the book for you. That means the book will be worth a dollar less, but what do we care? Right? <laughs> seriously, seriously. Stan, we're. Amazon says. <laughs> well, I don't know what they say, but as long as, as it works for you, we appreciate it. Stan, thank you so much for joining us this week on the PowerCast. It's been my pleasure. We'll do it Thanks, again Stan. sometime. Absolutely. Thank you, Stan. The PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.